Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Well, today we start a brand new five-week sermon series on revival. I don't know if you uh, saw on the news some weeks ago in Kentucky at Asbury University, there was a revival. It made national news. Everybody was talking about it. And what happened is some people got together for a normal weekly chapel service, and then they just sort of never stopped having that chapel service. And for weeks, um, weeks on end, people were singing and praising, and from out of town they came, and they filled the chapel, and the Spirit was moving, and lives were changed. And, and all around the country, everybody said, but why not us? Why not here? Why not us? Why them? Why there? Why not us? So for the next five weeks, what I thought we could do is that's been something on our hearts is go, what, what is revival? Uh, biblically, what is revival? Uh, how do we invite it? How do we hinder it? And then what might it look like for revival to be a part of our story here? There's two modern concepts about revival. The first of those is uh, you would see, Dwight, you can go ahead and put that picture up. This is the first modern concept of revival. You schedule it. You just say, Lord, we're going to have a revival. It's September 21st through the 26th, and uh, you better be there. And this is a modern evangelistic revival. This is a planned thing. You know, you've seen a tent meeting where an evangelist will come, and you invite your friends, and, and you intend to revive hearts. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's one modern way we think of revival is you just put it on the calendar and hope God shows up. Another thing, uh, another way we think about it is is the way that Asbury happened, which is like you don't do anything, you don't plan anything, you don't mean anything, but it just sort of breaks out in some sort of spontaneous, no one can explain it, and off you go for weeks at a time and everybody's changed. And so, so neither uh, fully fulfills a biblical understanding of what revival is. Um, and so the question is, what are you longing for? Revival simply means coming alive again. It just means re, you know, like again, and vive, life. It's, it's just coming alive again. Individually, we want to come alive again in new ways. Um, parts of our lives, we want to come alive in new ways. Um, corporately, we want to be alive. Our, we, we pray for our city. We pray for our nation to come alive again in a new way. John Piper says that God is the giver of life, and humanity is ever drifting from, from God towards lifelessness. And so he says this, Revival is coming back to life or a fresh outpouring of God's life-giving spirit on his people. So when we're saying, what is revival? John Piper would say it this way. He says, it's a, life, it's a fresh outpouring of God's life-giving spirit on his people. This is good. Um, so, you know, if you're sleeping in church, this is God waking you up. That's the revival that's happening. I like it because it's individualized. It can be for you. It can be for us. It's either way. Culturally, though, what do we mean? We mean when we say revival, we want the roof blowing off this place. We want people streaming in and out. We want lives changed. We have people that are praying for this right now. And we go, how do, how do we get that? We might get to that before the series is over. Tim Keller has another definition we'll add to Piper's. Tim Keller says it this way, it isn't something humans do, but rather revival is the intensification of the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. 
Simply the intensification of the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. What are those? He would say they are conviction, conversion, assurance, and sanctification. The Spirit provides conviction, conversion, assurance, and sanctification. This is biblically supported, and we go, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Revival is when the Holy Spirit who is in us and lives through us and is among us, the Holy Spirit is actually intensified among us. Like, um, I don't know if you're old enough to know what television looked like before high-definition, flat-screen everything. We had a television in, in my house that was a black-and-white television. It came in a beige box. It was about this big. And sometimes if somebody was watching television, we, we, we felt really lucky. We had a second television. But it was a little beige box, and it was a black-and-white television. And so when you watched the black-and-white television, you were still watching, you know, the Sunday NBA game of the week. But if you went from the little black-and-white television over to the color television, it was like, you know, some sort of trippy experience of colors and shapes, and it was just different. Same game, same feed, intensification. So when we talk about revival, it, it isn't that the Holy Spirit isn't here or isn't in us. It's that there's an intensification that happens from normal, everyday, ordinary life and the ordinary operations into something maybe greater. Almost everyone would agree that uh, revival is a pure movement of the Holy Spirit. It's not something we can conjure up. It's not something we can schedule. It's not something we manipulate. It's divine. And it's palpable, but not really describable. So consider the day of Pentecost. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. We'll read when the Holy Spirit descends on the followers. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. When you talk about revival, when you talk about the Spirit's intensification, when you talk about the Spirit falling on somebody, when you see a life transformed, you often can't explain it from the inside. Insiders can't explain it. If you've had this experience where somebody goes, you're different, what happened? You go, ah, uh, I don't know. I mean... I can say Holy Spirit, but if, if you haven't experienced that, you don't know what that means. And so outsiders are watching the Holy Spirit fall upon the disciples, and they go, they've just had too much wine. It's like trying to rationally retell your alien abduction, you know? <laughs> I just wanted to see who was going to go. But there's no way to rationally retell an alien abduction because the rest of us go, well, that's not real, and it didn't happen, and it never happened to me, so little green men, whatever. You can't rationally retell something that someone else has never experienced. You can try, but it doesn't quite work. And so the outsiders, they can't understand it because the insiders can't quite explain it. So the outsiders say, are they drunk? And this is normal. Anything sometimes, the, any, anything, uh, an inexplicable thing happens, something that's kind of too big for our brains, we come up with a pseudoscientific explanation. And our society is better at this than any in history. There is nothing that we can't go find a pseudoscientific explanation for. Miracles don't exist anymore. It was just the winds were blowing in this direction, and then there was a vortex that was there, and so it probably was. And you're like, well, maybe it was a miracle, though. Mystery confounds the human brain. 
So we explain things away. It's, it's where conspiracy theories come from. Conspiracy theories come from events that are too big for us to understand and explain. And so we have to create something that's simpler that we can understand. Like the moon landing. Dwight, there are people, maybe you're in here, I'm not calling you out. There are people who said this was sat on a, a soundstage somewhere in who knows where because they, we never landed on the moon. That's a real thing that people think. Why do people think that we never landed on the moon? Why can't we comprehend that that man put man on moon. Let me read you some facts. The moon orbits the earth at 2,288 miles an hour. That's really fast. That's four times faster than the, the plane that takes you across the country goes. 2,288 miles an hour, the moon is just flying around. Okay? The earth, if you stand on the equator, the earth is spinning 1,000 miles an hour. And so 2,288 miles an hour, 1,000 miles an hour, things are spinning and rotating and orbiting. And so we had an idea that we were going to put some guys into a missile, explode it from Earth, and then somehow they would land perfectly on that orbiting celestial, and people go, nah, it's fake, can't happen. Why? Well, because it's hard to say, well, how did you do this? And then scientists and smart people from NASA would say, well, it's just math. And those of us who are not very good at math go, well, that can't be because I did division and I, that doesn't happen. That's not how that works. <laughs> I don't know, 2,088 minus 1,000 times pi, and I don't know. So it doesn't work. It can't happen. And so they must not have done it because I can't understand it. So we create conspiracy theories for things we can't fully understand. So it's easier to just say they faked it. So people are watching the Holy Spirit fall upon the followers of Jesus, and they, they can't understand it. So what do they say? Now nah, they're just drunk. The Spirit of the living God that raised Jesus is upon us and in us, empowering, empowering us as we go. The Bible would tell you, if you are a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of the living God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And sometimes that's too big for our brains. Sometimes we can't quite get there. And so we explain it away. And I don't think Christians, like real Christians aren't going, the Holy Spirit is fake, but we go, I don't know. Maybe it's just distant. Maybe it's a, it's a good idea. I kind of feel it sometimes, but not like, it's not personal. And so we begin as Christians to explain away the Holy Spirit, which is just a way of saying, I'm quenching, I'm, I'm tamping down the power of the Spirit because I'm not actually relying on the power of the Spirit. And we do that because we don't understand it. So instead of Holy Spiriting our way through the world, we strategize our way through the world. We plan our way through the world. We try to control our way through the world because we don't understand the actual power that powers our lives. But, biblically, comprehension is not a prerequisite for conversion. I don't know about you, but I didn't understand much about Jesus when Jesus came and took my life. And I understand a whole lot more now, but I, I didn't have to know a certain amount of facts figures in order to get it done, in order for Jesus to come and rescue me. And similarly, I don't have to understand the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I don't have to have taken the seminary class on how the Holy Spirit, I don't have to understand that for the Holy Spirit to still be living within me, empowering my life. God wants to revive you. God wants revival in you personally. He wants to make you alive again, fully alive again. When we do baptisms, it's an invitation for you to remember your own I once was story. It's an invitation for you to say, I once was 
lost. I once was a fraud. I once was a scoundrel. I once was a wretch. I once, I once was. I once was broken. But because Jesus entered my life, Jesus rescued me, I'm now something different. I'm, I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm a, I'm a sinner made saint. And as a result of that, the Holy Spirit lives in me. That's, this is the, the whole idea for baptism for a, not, for a believer. The believer is supposed to go, ah, yeah, I remember that. I know that feeling. We clap for them because we're clapping for us sometimes. Because we're going, the story that, that Charlotte gets in the, in the tub and she allows dad to baptize her and she gets up and she's done a thing for us. Her story resonates because for so many of us, it's our story. And she's reminding us that God is alive and active and wants to revive us. And we see that in that story playing out. And the question is, do we then press it down because we don't quite get it? Or do we open our hands and go, okay, Spirit, make me alive again. God wants to revive you. God wants to revive our church. God wants to revive our community. God wants to revive our country. God wants to revive our world. So how do we attain revival? How do we bring revival into our lives and our homes and our city. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book called Revival. It's helpful for me in this series. It's a just incredible theologian and teacher. He died in the early 80s, and uh, this book has just been blowing my hair back a little bit. In the foreword to the book, J.I. Packer, himself an incredible theologian, writes this. We'll put it on the screen so you can look at it with me. J.I. Packer says, The divine visitation that revives cannot be precipitated by human effort, even though our not caring about it and not seeking it can effectively quench the spirit and block it. To acknowledge our present impotence and cry to God for such a visitation is a supreme priority for the church today. But we shall not do this until we grasp the need for revival. And that will not happen until we see that nothing less can help us. This is a powerful statement. The, the line I pull out of there that I would highlight if I could and hand to you is not a line you're going to see on a bookstore shelf anytime soon. It's our present impotence. Our powerlessness is what we need more than anything. We need to recognize our powerlessness if we're going to do anything in this area. In this, area. this requires a humility. When you recognize you're powerless, all of a sudden you have humility and that's the, now the building blocks for revival to take place because I know I can't conjure up revival. No sermon I can give is going to create revival in you. The Holy Spirit of God will create revival in you. Once we realize that, it changes our math and we stop controlling and planning and preparing our way to try to strategize into a better life for Jesus. And we start relying our way on the Spirit for the life that Jesus created in us. And it's a radical change, but it requires us to recognize our present impotence. You can't manipulate God. You can't engineer work. You can't overthrow him as master, tell him how you're best loved and fed, and then let him take care of it from there. Unexpectedly, I'm reading this book, Revival, right? I'm telling you about this book. I was ready for, you know, this theologian to use this one passage after another and really opened this up for me. And I, I kind of knew what I thought he was going to do. And the, I think the reason I like it is he did a different thing. He actually used Mark chapter 9. We're going to get to it in a minute. But he used a story I didn't expect to have anything to do with revival. But he sets up our whole series, and I'm going to use it because he used it so well. What's happening in Mark 9 is Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain, and he, he experiences a transfiguration. 
Essentially, God's presence visits them on the mountaintop. Jesus is radiant with glory. He hears the voice of heaven, and the voice of God himself says, this is my son, listen to him. So they come down from the mountain, Jesus and these three friends, and they come down to a crowd and to chaos. And so a man, while they're up there, experiencing the presence of the living God in his fullness, a man has brought his, uh, his son to the disciples for healing, and the son has an unclean spirit. He's demon-possessed. He's mute, he's foaming at the mouth, he's seizing, he's convulsing. And the dad says the the spirit is such that it even throws him into fire and throws him into water. It's trying, the spirit in this boy is trying to kill the boy. So if there's a roaring fire, the boy finds the spirit throwing him into it. If there's water, the boy is trying to be drowned by this, this unclean spirit that's in him. And some of you, before we even get to the text, are going, oh boy, spirits. Did we land on the moon? Oh, I don't know. I don't understand it. doesn't mean it didn't happen. If you're a follower of Christ and you believe in God's word, then it's very clear that there is a world you do not see. There are powers and principalities. There is a spiritual realm that exists. We have to get comfortable with the spiritual realm because we can't just have the Holy Spirit in the good side and ignore the fact that there's something else out there as well. That there is a spirit of the power of the air, is what the Bible calls it, the spirit of the world that is conspiring against the spirit of God. And so, this boy is demon-possessed. He has an unclean spirit. And the dad comes to Jesus and says, if you can do anything, help him, please, please. If you can do anything. We pick it up in verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe and help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, and he said to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Okay. And I said, how is this revival? Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy, and the disciples' question is, why couldn't we do it? So the context here is they've been out healing. Jesus sent them out healing. And they're doing God's work. They're, They're kind of ambassadors for Jesus, and people are being healed through the disciples. And they come to this demon-possessed boy, and they can't get it done. It's different. It's more difficult. And Jesus begins to kind of reveal that there are gradations to these things, that there are sort of maybe levels. This kind, he says, can only be accomplished through prayer. Like a bruise is different than a sprain, is different than a break, is different than a compound fracture. We get that. And he's saying the same thing exists in the, in the spiritual world, that there are gradations to these things. Martin Jones tells the story like this. He says, imagine you're walking down a road and you find a man lying on the side of the road. So we're walking down Wooster. If you can get through the construction, you're walking down Wooster. And there's a guy just, just face down up against the curb laying on the road. You have a few options at this moment as you consider what is exactly happening. It depends on the time of day, what day of the week. Is it St. Patrick's Day? Okay. You're thinking about it. Is he asleep? Did he decide to take a nap? Is he drunk? Is he poisoned? Did he have like a brain hemorrhage? And this is like, this is... He's dead? But you see this person laying in the road, and you have very few options at this point. 
If he's asleep, you simply go shake him and wake him up. Hey, not a good spot for a nap. Guy gets up, oh, thanks for waking me up. I missed my alarm, and he's on his way. But if you shake him to wake him up, and he's poisoned, that's not helping. If you shake him to wake him up, and he's medically unconscious, that doesn't help at all. You, hey, buddy, he's not going to respond. It doesn't help at all. So we have to look at the world around us in the way that we look at that sort of story. The diagnosis determines the prescription. If we look at the world around us, the context around us, the culture around us, the culture around us is not sleeping on the side of the road and just happened to miss their alarm. And so a simple shaking to wake them up isn't going to work. As we find ourselves being pulled into the culture, more and more conforming to the culture if we're not careful, then we need revival in a new way, but just shaking us and waking us up won't work. There was a time in American life, in American history, where Christianity was such that you could schedule a revival, preach some good words, and mostly sleeping Christians would mostly wake up. Oh yeah, I forgot. I kind of got off track, but I'm in now. The state of the world today is such that we can't just shake people gently and kind of give them a little pat on the back and expect them to get up and be fully alive in Jesus. It's different now. And so there's something greater that's required. There's, there's a, well, there's a powerlessness, isn't there? So what can I do if I'm walking by the street and I can't wait? I feel powerless. I can't do anything for this person. I need a greater power to come and resuscitate this person. So we make a phone call. We call an ambulance. We get a professional. Spiritually, when we're thinking about it as well, we're praying for our nation to be revived. We're praying for our city to have revival. We're praying for our church to have revival. And, and yet our strategies, our methods, are we're like kind of gently shaking. I'm like, if I have a Bible study, maybe they'll come around. And yet the person still is laying there. I'm praying for my neighbor to have revival. What is it going to take? I can send over some brownies. I can compliment their flowers. I can invite them to a Bible study, maybe invite them to Christmas. And somehow they're not waking up because they're, they're not just sleeping. The culture we find ourselves in and the day we find ourselves in, it's something bigger. It's something greater. And the scripture would say that it's always been this way. We're just sensing it more now that we need to call on something greater, on someone higher. There has to be a power greater than us that's going to actually do the resuscitating. And so we, we tend to rely on methods where it really is about relying on a greater power. We pin our faith and hope for a revival on methods. And yet, our inability to get it done should create that humility that brings us back to the powerlessness, that brings us back to prayer, that brings us back to the Father. There's nothing wrong with apologetics. Some people like apologetics. Nothing wrong with apologetics, but a new apologetics class won't wake up a sleeping culture. It's good, but it's not the recipe for revival. Good archaeology. What if we could prove the historicity of Jesus through good archaeology? Well, that's good, but it's not going to wake up the culture. What about good preaching? What about being more uh, relevant on the right medium? We can get our, what if we got our stuff on TikTok? That would wake people up. And the reality is that it won't. It's not about being more relevant. It's not about being in the right places. It's not about the right method. None of the methods work. And when we realize none of the methods work, then it sends us back to what does work. And we ask the question, what works? What woke you up in the first place? The Holy Spirit of God. Listen to what Martin Jones says in response to the disciples' inability in ours. He says it this way. You must become aware of your need, of your impotence, that word again, of your helplessness. You must realize, he's British, so it's not a misspelling. You must realize that you are confronted by something that is too deep for your methods to get rid of 
or to deal with. And you need something that can go down beneath the evil power and shatter it. And there's only one thing that can do that, and that's the power of God. Whew. You have to become aware of your need first. Do you need revival in your life? Do you need revival in your marriage? Do you need revival in your business? Do you need revival in your school? Do we need revival in your neighborhood, in our city, in our nation? Do you, do you even care? Because if you don't know the need, you're not going to pray for it. Then, if you know your need, now you have to know your impotence, your helplessness. What can I do about it? I can put a sign in my yard alerting my neighbors to my faith. Nothing wrong with that. If you have a sign in your yard, I'm not talking about you. But what are you doing? That's not going to get it done. So you have to realize that you've been confronted by something that is too deep for your methods, something that is bigger than your ability, and only in your inability and then your humility and then your impotence and your powerlessness do you realize that I need the power of God involved if this is ever going to change. When we pray for somebody, we pray because we have a, a need for them. When we say, I'll pray for you, and we don't pray, it's because we don't actually feel the need to help them out. So many of us, I'll pray for you, brother. Praying for you. I send a lot of texts to say, I'm praying for you. And I have to stop myself and actually pray for the person in that moment. Because otherwise, I'll say, I'm praying for you. And then uh, six months will go by, and I'll be like, oh, I never really prayed for that person. Why? Because it's an easy thing to say. It's just words. But when we feel the need for somebody, when we have the love for somebody, when we have the burden for somebody, we pray for them because I can't fix it. When you go in the hospital, I'm no doctor. I can't fix it, but I can pray for you. That's all I can do. It's actually the best thing I can do. When your neighbor, your loved one, your relative, your coworker is so lost and you see their life in destruction and they're broken and you go, I wish I could help. It starts, doesn't it? It starts with prayer. We start with strategy, we start with planning, we start with preparations, and what we have to do is learn to start with prayer because the power of the living God that lives in you and breathes through you is the only way revival comes. So you want to live in a church where revival takes place, it starts with every person in this church on their knees at night going, God, bring revival to our church. God, bring revival to my street. Not open the door so I might strategically reveal Jesus to my friends. That's fine. That's not, that's not the power of God. I'm okay with you praying that prayer if you know that it's the power of God at work. But so many times we're asking God to kind of like play offensive linemen so we can run the play we want to run. Can you just make a hole here so I can get through? Where we need to be like on the injured reserve going, God, run the play. Run the play and let me cheer for you as you win. What changes hearts? Nothing less than the power of God. What breaks through strongholds, what crushes addictions, what brings true healing, nothing less than the power of God. It does not mean you should not activate. It does not mean you shouldn't be strategic. It doesn't mean you shouldn't work for the betterment of your neighborhood or your friends or your relatives who don't know Jesus. It does not mean that. I'm not saying to back off, but I'm saying prayer has to start the conversation. Your methods don't heal. Your methods will fall short. Jesus said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus, the Son of God, says this kind of demon cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus says you have to rely on a greater power. So what do we learn? Jesus says all things are possible for the one who believes. 
And the man says, I do believe, one of my favorite little snippets in the Bible, I do believe, help my unbelief. You can be a believer in Jesus and still have areas of unbelief. You can be a believer in Jesus and still have spots and, and slivers and, and little corners of your heart that are like not fully convinced or not fully activated. And the man says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Help the spaces of me that are still short of what I need for this healing to take place, for my belief in you to be real. Help my unbelief. So do you believe in the power of God? I think almost every Christian goes, yes, I do. We need to follow that up with, but help my unbelief. Help the places where I don't still. Help the places where I'm still white-knuckling it through. Because I have belief, but I might have some unbelief lingering in there. So your prayer in your marriage, your prayer in your work, your prayer in your neighborhood, your prayer for your kids, your prayer is help my unbelief. I can move this mountain, Lord. You said it's true, but help my unbelief. I believe you can awaken your city, our community. You can heal your marriage. You do it by hitting your knees and saying, Lord, I believe you can do this, but help my unbelief. We said God can't be manipulated, so this is not a magic trick. It's not a, hey, we got the key. The answer is if you just pray about it, he'll do what you want him to do. Doesn't work like that. I told the story before, but my sister was uh, gravely ill at 11 years old. My family spent the next 15 years praying for healing. She died at 25. Lord, we prayed, we asked, we begged, we sat by beds and surgery tables, we did all the things. We had our knees, we believed, we said, Lord, help our unbelief, we believe you can heal her. He did, in his way. So this is not our way to manipulate God towards revival. This is not our way to twist God's arm and say, if I do it the way the Bible said, the formula's right. This is our way to say we are powerless and he is good. And so as we chase him, as we pursue God, as we want revival personally and collectively, we have to find ourselves with a new passion for prayer. We have to believe that hitting our knees and speaking words out to the living God actually matters. And if we believe that and we say, Lord, help my unbelief where it's still not fully formed, help me get there, I think we see the beginnings of a movement in our city. But short of that, we'll just have new strategies and new methods, and we'll still be sort of frustrated that it's still the way it was. If you want revival in your heart, in your home, in your city, in your nation, it begins with a humility and a powerlessness and prayer. So my question is, what are you praying for? What are you praying for? Are you on your knees about it at night? Are you on your face about it at night? Are you asking God for a fresh outpouring of his life-giving spirit? Are you asking God for an intensification of his conviction and conversion and assurance and sanctification? Until we recognize our impotence and our powerlessness, we will never truly pray for his wild power to be unleashed in our lives. Until you know you have no power, you'll never pray for his power to be unleashed. So it starts there. Our prayer should be that, God, we're desperate for revival, and we believe you can move amongst us. So help our unbelief. Let's pray that now. Heavenly Father, we are powerless in front of you. It's you who chose to save us. It's you 
who sent your son. Lord, it's you who make a way. And Lord, we have a thousand things we need to be revived in this place. It's in our hearts, it's in our marriages, it's, God, it's in our kids, it's in our friends. Lord, our city and our nation, we need revival. We cannot make it happen, and we admit it, we confess it, we are powerless. But we believe you can do it, and our prayer starting today is that while we believe it, we also know that we have some unbelief. So help our unbelief, grow our belief, and help our unbelief. Fill out the corners of our lives that we would see your power working. Strip us away of our assurances and self-assurances that we might rely more on you take care to get rid of the modernity that convinces us that we've got this thing figured out and drop us into a place where we know that we are nothing and we are nowhere if we're not with you. Father, revive our church. Revive the homes in this church. Revive this city. We believe you can do it. So help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.